Welcome, and thanks for joining us for another sermon from True Vine Baptist Church and Pastor Josh LaGrange. This Resurrection Sunday, we turn to the book of Galatians, and during this sermon, we dive into the principles of how Christ became the curse, how he bore God's wrath, and how he frees us from the curse. You can join us by turning in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3, as Pastor Josh LaGrange delivers his sermon titled, Jesus Frees Us from the Curse. chapter 3, we're specifically going to be meditating on verse 13. I want to read verses 10 to 14 uh, to get a bit of the context, and we'll spend a little bit of time explaining it. But know that we're, we're going for the theme that's in verse 13 there. So taking your copy of the living word of the living God, Galatians 3, beginning in verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law... To say that in a different way, those who trust in the law, those who trust in their ability to obey God and so be right with him, here's the pronouncement, are under a curse. For it is written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident for, here's another quote, From the Old Testament, the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not a faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In order that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Let's pray. Our merciful God, Lord, we are overwhelmed as we just consider the reality that across this planet this morning, believers from all nations have have woken up, gotten out of bed, and come and bowed before you, the risen king, overwhelmed by what we celebrate, you delivering us from what could literally be the worst possible misery and bringing us to the greatest possible joy and eternal delight, all because of the work of Christ. Lord, we come and draw near to you, rejoicing in what you have done. We, your sons and daughters who trust in Christ, we want to today glory in these truths. Father, we do not want, we do not want the truths to just be cold facts, like just knowledge that we pull out of our brains. Father, we want to exult in you. We want to rejoice in our salvation. We want to delight and exult in you, you who have drawn us to yourself. We want to tremble as we ought to. So Father, please help us. Please send your spirit. Father, I pray to every home, every individual, every family, everyone gathered, oh God, please send your spirit to stir our hearts to be able to draw near in worship. And God, as it must surely be the case, that there are those tuning in that are not yet among your sons and daughters. They have not yet bowed the knee to Christ. They have not yet turned so as to be saved. Father, we pray that you would make this time, this study, this sermon, this text to be the moment in history where they respond in faith. So please bring it, O God. Help me to preach. Help all of us to worship and all for your glory. Father, we pray, give your blessing. We ask all this in the name of Christ. Amen. C.S. Lewis, when he was still an atheist, so before he had turned to Christ, one of the things that he wrote that perplexed him about Christianity, you know, in his mind, Christianity was for, you know, the ignorant and unintelligent, but yet when he would read Christian poetry, when he would read of the the art, the stories from history, he was perplexed by how much beauty was there. 
He was amazed that Christians were tapped into this, this sort of fountain of beauty. He would read, I think I've mentioned to you all in the past, he would read George Herbert, for instance, who is arguably uh, the greatest poet of uh, the English history. Uh, and even reading some of George Herbert's poetry is where I first saw some of the truths we're going to look at today as we follow them through history. Uh, Lewis would read Herbert and just be amazed at this man writing about the glory of Christ. And it, with, it was with such excellence. And it's partly what actually helped convince Lewis of the authenticity of the gospel and turn to him. Well, to us Christians who have been studying the Bible for some time, this is not surprising. We are just regularly amazed uh, reading through the gospels uh, again this week and kind of thinking through preparing. I was, I was struck again this week by just how much poetic beauty is in the gospel records. And, and it's not just that the Bible like puts a nice, beautiful spin on things. It's that God, the father unfolded the events of his purposes in a particular way that showed beautiful things. We see this throughout all of the scripture. Roughly a third of the Bible is some kind of poetic language. And whenever we see that, we're actually learning something about God himself. It's not just that we happen to think the Bible as a piece of literature is nice. We're tapping into and drawing near to see something about the character of God the God from whom all beauty flows. The God who not only revealed his word, the scriptures being breathed out, he inspiring human writers to write, not only that the Bible was written with, you know, kind of cool, neat connections and things like this, but, but also that we see that God, whenever he wrote the story of history and has been unfolding history, According to his purposes, climaxing in the cross and resurrection of Christ, that God has unfolded it in a way that events tell a story and even bringing out beautiful symbols, poetic ironies, incredible language that's there. Like a master novelist who when we read we're amazed at the intelligence of the writer to be able to make connections that something happens at the beginning that ties into the end. We read the Bible and we see God there even in the garden. The very early chapters of Genesis begin to introduce some themes that are carried through the Bible. The author separated by more than a thousand years and then it see it climaxed in Christ leaves us breathless. But there's no place where God's poetic beauty is clearer and more beautiful than in the defining work of history, the work of Christ. The Father has worked so that men and angels would see the majesty, the glory of Christ and would fall in worship to him. You know, the Bible has cold, hard facts, you know, and, and we need those. We, we, need, we need facts stated simply. But worship happens when it leaves the realm of being cold to us. Worship happens when we respond in joy to what God is revealing. Worship happens when we tremble. Worship happens when we are exulting, when we're overwhelmed with gratitude. Worship happens when we glory and when we see and behold the wondrous mystery and we are left breathless and we see God working to that end as he reveals the gospel in scriptures. From these poetic ironies uh, in times like when the soldiers dress Jesus up as a king, put a crown of thorns on his head, mockingly kneeled before him and confessed him as the king of the Jews. There's the great irony in that he is a king, he has a crown, and they and all will bow and confess him as the king. Here is God giving great irony. To places like even the symbolism 
of even with Barabbas, the condemned, guilty criminal being set free by Christ taking his place. This is the father preaching sermons in events. And the Bible helps us see these glorious kinds of things. We Christians, we're just all the time amazed as we see hundreds upon hundreds, and that's not an exaggeration, hundreds upon hundreds of these moments of connection and poetic beauty, symbolism, and a storyline of redemption that leaves us aghast in worship. Well, I want to try this morning to help us worship by tracing just another of these hundreds, another one of these incredible pictures to help us feel the depths of the glory of our redemption. From the beginning of Genesis, tracing through the Bible and even coming to literally the last chapter of the Bible, Revelation 22, you can trace the theme of the curse. And the climax of God's story is Jesus, the God-man, bearing the curse, becoming a curse on our behalf in order to lift the curse so that we can come into the blessing of God. So I want to spend this time this morning thinking on this dimension of our redemption. We have more elements of the gospel, more elements of our redemption that we can meditate on and glory in than you will have Easter Sundays in your life. But want to take just one this morning and think it through. Let me start by briefly walking through our passage so that we make sure we understand the main points that are being said in 10 through 14. And then we're going to zoom the lens in specifically on verse 13 and this theme of the curse. So even though it's, we're specifically meditating on verse 13, what, ha, what truth we see there in that verse is not the main truth of the passage of verses 10 through 14. The main truth that's highlighted in 10 through 14 is actually the premise of the entire book of Galatians. And here it is. The way in which you receive the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection is by faith. That's the theme of the book of Galatians, and it's the theme that happens. Uh, it's, it's another one of the points made in order to show that truth in verses 10 to 14 here. You do not receive a right standing with God. You do not receive eternal life by your good works, by your obedience to God's law, by you making yourself good. It's not that God somehow weighs the level of purity of your heart. It's none of those things. The Bible shows us we cannot be good enough because we are sinners. We cannot attain some standard by our merit, our level of devotion, by how many religious good deeds you do. We're not able to receive it like that. It comes only by faith. This is actually a theme through a whole lot of the Bible. It comes up over and over again. It's even in the book of Genesis. The way that sinners are made right with God is by his grace being pardoned and we receive it by faith. But the reality is, in the pride of our hearts, we want to believe we're righteous. We, we want to believe we're good enough. We want to believe and so we deceive ourselves. And this is where every Christian was before we understood the message of the gospel and turned to Christ. What we convinced ourselves of before that we want to believe we're good enough for fellowship with God. We want to believe God's pleased with us. And then so obviously we would get heaven. When you ask the typical person, do you think you'll go to heaven when you die? The answer is, of course. And when you ask why, because I'm a good person. But notice the passage. If you back up to verse one of chapter three, the apostle being inspired by the Holy Spirit, this is God speaking his words through a man. And he says to this church, look at verse one, who has bewitched you? This church was started by Paul. He had came and he had taught them the message of the gospel, the message of Christ, 
um, how we can have forgiveness of sins, be made right with God, have eternal life when we receive the benefits of Christ's death and resurrection, when we receive it by faith. Paul planted that church. He moved on to go do it again. But after Paul left, there were false teachers who came into this church. And these false teachers came in with a message. It sounds so subtle. It sounds spiritual. And it's one of the most popular messages in churches in America. It is the message of salvation by works. It's the message of, yeah, you believe in Jesus. That's great. But you know, you got to make yourself good in order to get to heaven. We hear it all around us. You may have heard it so much. You actually think it's what the Bible says. What I beg you is don't believe, don't believe all the voices, <laughs> go to the source, go to the original document, look at the word of God. And as you read through the book of Galatians, he actually has incredibly strong language. It's the premise of the book. Paul is angry at this church. He, he really kind of lets loose on him. He is aggravated that they let this happen. He says, I taught you the gospel and you let somebody else come in and tell you something different. He even says in chapter one that if an angel from heaven were to show up in your midst and to teach you a, the message that you've been hearing, let that angel be damned. That's the language of chapter one. In chapter three, as you keep looking through there, look at verse six, okay? It's a quote from the book of Genesis. Abraham believed God and it was reckoned to him, credited to him, transferred to him, counted to him, imputed to him as righteousness, okay? This is how God has been revealing it from even the book of Genesis. We cannot make ourselves good enough by good works and good deeds. So then we come to chapter, or excuse me, verses 10 to 14 there. And so in verse 10, look what he says. As many as are of the works of the law, if you are relying on your ability to obey God, do good deeds, you're relying on the law, here is the biblical pronouncement. You are under a curse. And then he gives an explanation for that. Here's, here's a place in the Bible where he... He gets this from Deuteronomy 27, 26 is where that comes from, but it's actually repeated numerous times in scripture. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by, these next words are critical, all things written in the book of the law to perform them. When people claim to be good, and this is where we Christians were, let's, you know, let's not get prideful. This is where we Christians were before we understood the gospel. When we say we're good, what we mean is, I do a lot of good works. I obey most of God's law. We look at ourselves and we determine, you know, surely I'm the definition of what a good person is. We judge ourselves. We evaluate ourselves. And on our own scales, as we compare ourselves to other people with our biased judgment, we conclude, I must be good enough. But I got to make the point quickly because we've got more things we're moving on to, but just look at what he says there in the text. If you were going to be right with God based on your goodness, here is God's standard. It doesn't matter what your standard is. Here is God's standard. We would have to obey with perfection. We would have to obey every single commandment. The Ten Commandments is not all of God's commandments. The Ten Commandments is just the summarization of God's law. There are hundreds of commandments that God has given. We would have to obey every single one down to the dot of the I, the cross of the T. We would have to look at every single one and obey them perfectly. God is holy. He will not fellowship with unholy people. His heaven is righteous, holy, and good. He's not letting any kind of sin whatsoever into that place. And so if we evaluate ourselves and I'm like, I'm mostly good. You have to understand, mostly good cannot enter a perfect heaven, a perfect kingdom. We would mess that place up just like we've messed this place up. God says to be right with him, if it was going to be based on works, it has to be absolute obedience. Now, a lot of times when people hear that, the first thing they want to do is argue. <laughs> and let me just, let me just kind of caution you there. It's God. <laughs> you don't win in an argument against God. It doesn't matter if you think it is unfair. 
it is fair. God is righteous. God is holy. You're never going to win against God. He tells us reality. We are to respond to him. And so if you look at the text and you come to the conclusion that you're supposed to come to, and you look at yourself, you look at your life, you look at your situation and you see, well, according to the law, according to commandments, according to good works, I'm doomed. Here's the good news. For the first time in your life, you're now ready to understand the gospel. For the first time in your life, you're now ready to understand the glory of what it is that God has done in Christ. If it were possible for us to make ourselves right with God by works, Jesus didn't need to come. Okay, the crucifixion, resurrection was the mission and the whole point of why he came is because we cannot make ourselves right based on our works. We need another way, we need grace. And Christ came to bring that grace. Jesus died a substitutionary death to take the place, dying in the place of all who would come to him so that we can get the grace of being pardoned. You cannot earn it, but God in mercy will give it as a gift. And the point of the book of Galatians is the point of this passage right here. It is to show this, the way you get what Jesus died for, the way you get this grace is by a true turning in faith. Bible goes to a, a lot of effort to show what true faith is, not just that acknowledgement while you sit at home and do nothing. True turning in submissive, repentant faith, but we must receive it. If a cure for cancer were discovered this week, that doesn't just mean that instantly everybody is cured of it. You have to receive the remedy before it applies to you. And you cannot just simply hear, so here's another one of the dangers so often when it comes around Christmas time, Easter time, folks who are not trusting in Christ, they're not following Christ, will hear some verse read, like verse 13, Jesus redeemed us from the, from the curse of the law. And they'll say, there you go, now I'm good. You must personally receive the remedy. Receive the benefits and you receive it by turning to Christ in faith. And so the rest of what he says here is all just showing that. In verse 12, what he says is he quotes another place from the Old Testament. He who practices them would live by them if you had obeyed the God perfectly. Yes, it is true. You would get life, full definition of life, eternal life by doing it. The problem is we haven't. We need verse 11, another place in the Old Testament showing life comes by grace, receiving it by faith. So the whole point is, we have not been able to obey God's law. And when you break God's law, there is a punishment. When you break God's law, there is a curse. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. What is this curse? Well, I want to walk you through the Bible and show you some of the places where we get insights into what this is. So if you'll start with me, we're going to be jumping around to a few places. If you'll flip back to the book of Genesis with me, Genesis chapter three, uh, Genesis chapter three. You know the story, God created a glorious world, placed Adam and Eve in the garden. God gave them his law and he explained, this becomes really important by the way. God gave his law and he said, obey me and you will live disobey and you will die. If you disobey my command in the day you disobey, you will surely die. Adam took of the fruit, broke the command of God. And in Genesis three, we have the fall. And then if you start in verse 14 there, we have the curse that God pronounced on the world and on souls. If you look at verse 14 there, the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle. He continues on. God pronounces a curse on the serpent, a curse on the man, a curse on the woman, a curse on the ground. Jump to verse 17 there and see a, a few aspects that are important for us to understand. Starting in verse 17, then to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree about which I commanded you saying, you shall not eat from it. 
Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life, both thorns and thistles. It shall grow for you. And you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you will eat bread till you return to the ground because from it you were taken for you are dust and to dust you will return. Hang on to those aspects of the curse. Hang on to that imagery of the thorns. In fact, I think we could say if you were gonna pick just one imagery that would summarize the curse Thorns would be a pretty fitting symbol. Thorns, pain, dust, death. It sums up the curse that God placed the world under. And here's here's what a curse is. A curse is the opposite of blessing. And, and, And so to understand a curse, we first have to understand what a blessing is. The greatest example of a blessing that we have in the Bible now all the time, God is giving his blessings. You know, even the air that we breathe is God's kindness uh, coming to us over and over in the Bible. God's hundreds of times, God speaks words of blessing, but there are actually times, uh, there's, there's a time where God gives kind of like the model blessing. If you jump to Numbers chapter six, In number six, God is actually speaking to Aaron, the the first high priest there. And he gives Aaron and he says, when you bless people in my name, here's how you do it. Here's the formula. Here's the equation. So this is the model blessing that God gives. Numbers six, if you look at verse 23 there, he says, here's what you say. And then verse 24, look at the elements. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you. And be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace. That same language is repeated throughout the Bible. It's in the Psalms. It's in the history books. It's referenced in the New Testament. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. It's the idea that if God smiles on you, if he shows you favor, If he decides to pour out his grace on you, then your life will be flooded with his kindness. It's a beautiful thought. So a curse is take the opposite of every aspect of that. A curse is for the opposite of that blessing to come upon a soul. Instead of blessing, it is woe. You know, Jesus in the Beatitudes, he spoke those uh, blessings. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. And he, he rattles off numerous there. But Jesus also spoke the woes. Like, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. You rob the widow. You love your titles. It's the reality that instead of God making his face to shine upon you, A curse is, here's how R.C. Sproul um, said it in a sermon he preached on Galatians 3. I think it's one of the greatest sermons preached in modern times. But here's how he said it. The God's curse would be, instead of the supreme benediction of number six, it would be the supreme malediction. May the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. May the Lord turn his back upon you and remove his peace from you forever. Man, when I hear that, that's, man, that's like chills going down my spine. What could be more awful? What could be worse? That's why the Psalms say, Better to be a doorkeeper in the house of God than to dwell with the riches of the wicked. Better to be a tortured slave in this life because we got to understand the blessing is only rightly understood in terms of eternity, not the quality of life you have right now. Better to be a tortured slave in this life, but to have the blessing of God in eternity than to own the world but be under the curse of almighty God to pass into eternity 
and live out age upon age under the wrath of the living God. Well, listen, God as a just and right punishment has placed this world under his curse. I was born under the curse and so were you. The ground is cursed. The creation groans. And every soul that breaks the law of God comes under his curse. Storms rage because of the curse. Every hurricane, earthquake, mutation, heartache, cancer, every virus, death itself is a result of the curse. And every soul who breaks his law comes under the curse of his law. So if you're hearing me and you have obeyed God's law perfectly, you're fine. All the, all the warning that I'm giving, all the warning scripture gives, you have nothing to worry about. If every dot of the I, every cross of the T, if you obeyed the first commandment perfectly, that you have loved God to the degree that he created you to, if you honored your father and your mother through your childhood to absolute perfection, you have never coveted, never lusted, never hated. If you have never, you, then you are fine. It's the rest of us who have difficulty. But do not deceive yourself. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And this is why we need Christ. As you continue reading through the Bible of God showing the effects of the curse, you come to a point where God gave his law to Israel. He spelled out his law clearly. Now listen, God knew exactly what he was doing when he gave his law. He even says as he's giving the law, look, you're not going to be able to keep it perfectly. A key to understanding the Old Testament is that God was preparing the world, preparing history, preparing the angels and demons to be able to understand the cross of Christ. And to do that, part of the way he did that was by bringing Israel to live under the Old Testament law for 1,500 years. And as he was still delivering that law in the early days, we see a section, if you'll flip to Deuteronomy 28 with me for a second, we see a section where God is explaining some of these same principles, just saying them a little clearer. In Deuteronomy chapter 28, it's pretty crazy. God brings uh, Israel up onto mountaintops. Uh, one mountain represented blessing, another mountain represented uh, cursing, and they were to speak these words. And so God explains it. Deuteronomy 28, if you'll start in verse one, uh, read a passage here, begin with me in verse one. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments, you see the emphasis there, which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body. Five, blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Six, blessed shall you be when you come in. Blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause your enemies to run away from you. Verse eight, the Lord will command the blessing on your barns and such. Over and over, you get the point. This goes on for 14 verses. Really, it's the same principle as in the garden. Obey me and you will live. Obey me and you will live under my blessing, the full definition of life, and that includes eternal life. But then jump to verse 15. But it shall come about, if you do not obey the Lord your God, to observe, to do all his commandments and his statutes with which I charge you today, that all these curses will come upon you and overtake you. Cursed shall you be in the city and cursed shall you be in the country. Cursed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Cursed shall be your offspring. 19, cursed shall you be when you come in. Cursed shall you be when you go out. Verse 20, the Lord will cause or will send upon you curses, confusion and rebuke. He says the pestilence will cling to you on and on. You get the point. It's the same principle as the garden. Obey me and live blessed. Disobey and you will come under my curse. Now, 
Part of what we got to understand is this. The law, there's nothing wrong with the law of God. If you read all those things and think it unfair, no, it's absolutely fair. It's righteous. This is what justice is. There's nothing wrong with the law. The problem is with our failure. And you know that we're getting to the good news but we do have to understand where we would be without salvation in Christ. Without salvation in Christ, we would all bear the curse for eternity. There's another principle in God's law that he was using to uh, set the world up, to get the world ready to be able to understand the gospel. It's also in Deuteronomy. If you'll flip back to one more place, Deuteronomy 21 for just a second there. God wrote this law, knew exactly what he was doing. Look at chapter 21, find verse 22 there. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day. For he who is hanged is accursed of God so that you do not defile your land, which the Lord your God gives you as an inheritance. Um, let me give a little bit of an introduction just kind of set us up for understand that. Biblical justice is an incredibly important part of the Bible. And by the way, justice doesn't change. Um, we know that there are parts of that Old Testament law that are ceremonial, that Jesus fulfilled, and they're no longer binding on us. But understand that when God explained what justice is, okay, like to rob somebody is wrong, and here's the punishment it should get, justice doesn't change. This is God explaining justice to the world. And over and over again, whenever you're reading these parts of justice, I don't know about you, but I constantly find all these places where I read it, I'm just like, this is genius, the reason we have a lot of our troubles is because our society will not obey biblical justice. If we would implement biblical justice, there would be more. For instance, you'll hear about a gruesome crime and people will be talking about it. And you'll hear somebody say something like, I know it ain't right, but I think what ought to happen is that every person who rapes a child or some gruesome crime, they ought to be publicly hanged. But actually, what your heart is feeling in that moment is a longing for true biblical justice. What you're, what you're feeling is actually truth, okay? And God lays out what is right. What is right and what ought to happen are the same thing. That's what righteousness is. And that's what God lays out in his justice. And we see all kinds of examples like that. You also need to know there are parts of God's law that are misrepresented. And there are parts of God's law that contradict our modern sentiments. And there are times we just have to say God knows justice better than I do. But I say all that to, to show this. Under God's law, under justice, he wrote that certain crimes, it's a, it's a short list. Sometimes people act like the death penalty laws. There was like this long list. It's a short list of laws that demand the death penalty. And when the death penalty was carried out, the body was to be hung as a public demonstration of justice. I know there are some pinky lift and tea sippers who want to call that kind of thing barbaric, but there's hypocrisy to that. You know, the hypocrisy is here this criminal committed a barbaric crime, but instead we're going to defend the criminal. Who's the real savage there? But before I get off on a rabbit trail there, God instructed that this criminal was to be publicly hanged as a way of demonstrating to all, as a way of demonstrating to heaven and earth, the demonstration of justice. It publicly demonstrated this person as under the curse. God established the principle, hanging from a tree showed you bore the curse. So understand what God was doing when he did this. Yes, there are principles of righteousness at play. But secondly, in a bigger way, this is another way that God was preparing the world for the coming of his son, preparing hearts and minds to be able to more fully understand the single most significant event of history because in the crucifixion, our Lord Jesus hung from a tree. And that's the point that's made back in Galatians 3. In verse 13, once again, Jesus hung from a tree. See, here, here's, here's what we see bringing it all together. We were under the curse. 
And in order to be free from the curse, someone would have to take the curse on our behalf and bear the wrath that that curse demands. So Jesus took the curse onto himself. And and, and to see it even further, look at the specific language. Jesus did not merely take a curse. What does verse 13 say? He became a curse for us. There is a way that through imputation, okay, so we've been learning about imputation as we study through Romans. It's that principle of transfer, that principle of crediting. We still use it today like there, when there is a transfer of power to a power of returning, something like this. By way of implication, in the same way that scripture says that Jesus became sin on our behalf, he was counted as sin. Second Corinthians 5, God made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In the same way of imputation, Jesus became a curse for us. In the same way that on the day of atonement, whenever the hands were laid on the head of the sacrifice, symbolizing the transfer of guilt, the transfer of sin, so our sins, our guilt were transferred to Christ in a substitutionary atonement and he became the curse for us. And so watch this. We began by, you know, making a point about all of the poetic ways that God has written history, brought it about, and then shows it in scripture. Connect the dots here. Adam in the garden steals the fruit. As a result, the fall comes God curses the earth, tells man that he will endure pain, return to the dust, and die, and a symbol of the curse is thorns. Death, dust, thorns. Jesus, in order to redeem us from the curse, became a curse. He climbs a tree wearing a crown of thorns, dies as a man, is buried in the earth. Are you seeing the connection here? Like this is astounding. In the garden, there's a tree, curse brings thorns, Adam dies, returns to the dust. Jesus climbs the tree of Golgotha wearing a crown of thorns. He's wearing a crown showing he's a king. But he's the king who bears the curse. He's the king who saves his people. He's the king who works on behalf of his people. He climbs the tree wearing the crown of thorns and the father turns his face away. Do you remember what scripture shows is the epitome of the blessing. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you. Jesus bears the curse and the father turns his face away. The sky turns dark. God the Father brought an unnatural darkness in the middle of the day. The cosmos was bearing witness to the single most unnatural event of history as the innocent Son of God bore the wrath of the Father and bears the curse. The Father turns away the light of His countenance. Jesus gives up His Spirit and then is buried in the earth. You ever wonder why the Bible makes such a big deal about the burial? I remember being a kid and hearing about the gospel, the death, burial, and resurrection. There was always this emphasis on the burial, the tomb, the stone. And I was always like, well, why do we gotta talk about the burial part? That's obvious. You die, you get buried. The Bible's making a point here. As Adam would return to the earth, As Adam would descend into the earth as part of the curse, so Christ descended. So Christ descended into the earth, descended into death. His human body perished, the soul remaining alive. 1 Peter 3 says something really mysterious, but... I really want a chance to ask an angel about more of what happened. There's just this one phrase in 1 Peter 3 that mentions that Jesus then descended and preached. 
to the souls now in prison. I'd like to know more about that. What a sermon that must have been. The Savior himself heralding the gospel beyond the grave. It is the Father's intention that all know the gospel, even those souls in hell who had already been sentenced. It is the Father's intention that Jesus will be glorified in the eyes of all angels, all demons, and every soul. Jesus has taken every element of the curse onto himself. He drank every drop of that cup. He is the curse bearer and the curse lifter. And now because of that, what is the result? Back in Galatians 3, if you look at verse 14, in order, so here's the result, in order that in Christ Jesus, that don't miss that phrase, it's there all the time, in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. That's the non-Jews. Non That's those who are not of the bloodline of Abraham. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. What is the blessing of Abraham and why does it matter? Well, God spoke some pretty incredible promises of blessing to Abraham and to his seed, to his offspring, to his blessings. Things like eventually taking possession of the earth, kind of like a coming kingdom of heaven. God said to Abraham, I'll bless you and I'll bless your offspring, your descendants. And then uh, later, as the Bible goes on, God reveals more and explains that it is not by being of the bloodline of Abraham that gives you the, the fulfillment of these blessings and these promises. You become Abraham's children, sons and daughters by, look at it again, by faith, by faith. If you're, you're still in chapter three, jump down to verse 26. Look what it says. For you all, it's important that you know who the you are there. He's speaking to believers. For you all are sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. Are you in Christ? Then you have been removed from the curse. The curse of God has been taken off of you and you are now under the blessing, the blessing of Abraham, but way more important than that, the blessing of God. This is what Christ came to accomplish. So what's the response? Many hear all about these things and the only thing they want to do is argue. The only thing they want to do is complain about how God just ought to just forgive me because I say so. The omnipotent God, possessing all knowledge, all wisdom, is infinitely righteous and holy, fills the universe, and mankind hears of his law, points an accusing finger and says, how dare you do something I don't like. R.C. Sproul said, people want to believe in a God who is infinitely capable of blessing, but infinitely incapable of cursing. And so a result, millions flock to churches where they will never hear a single unpleasant thing. Just tell me I'm okay. Just tell me God loves me. Just make me feel good about myself. Well, you can argue all you want. You could even get every single human on your side to oppose God and you would not change God. You do not get to decide how the living God behaves and runs the cosmos. He declares his law. It is up to us to humble ourselves to cry out with Isaiah the first time he beheld God's glory and he cried out, woe is me for I am a man of unclean lips. God extends mercy the question that determines your eternity is how will you respond? 
Will you be obstinate in your heart and refuse and just insist that you're right? Or will you hear the words of God as he reveals himself and reveals the salvation he purchased, the offer of mercy? And will you bow the knee? Understand this very carefully. You will either bear the curse yourself or you will be under the safety of one who bore it for you. What the gospel declares is that Christ is your only hope. Christian, glory in the sweet news of the gospel. Glory in the redemption in Christ. That you who have not yet turned to him, you who are not yet in Christ, God does not say what he says in any kind of cruelty. He does what he does in righteousness and understand that when the Bible has hard language and God warns, it's warning in mercy. This is love of God to call you to repentance. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, not just with some mental acknowledgement. Even the demons understand that Jesus is Lord. That's not a right saving kind of trust in him. Turn your heart to Christ. Turn to him in a submissive repentant, resting in Christ, call out to him, begging him to forgive you, intend and resolve to follow him and you will be saved. Let's pray. God in heaven, thank you for the wondrous mystery you have revealed. Thank you for the pulling back of the curtains and thank you for what you have done in Christ. I, I just pray, oh God, for the hearers. Lord, those who are your people, grow us in the knowledge of these things. And by growing us in the knowledge, Lord, the intention is not just that we'd get smarter, but that we would be transformed. That in gratitude, we would obey. Father, grow us in Christ. And those listening that have not yet responded in repentance and faith, oh God, please bring them to salvation. Please give us your blessing, oh God. We love you and pray all these things in Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. We'll see you back here later. Thanks for listening. And we hope you enjoyed this week's message titled, Jesus Frees Us From the Curse. Tune in again next week as we continue through God's Word at True Vine Baptist Church. We also invite you to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter and Instagram at TrueVineIND, or visit our website at true-vine-baptist.org.